0: Hello, 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 everybody, and welcome to the show. I'm Kevin Flores, editor and co-founder of Forth.org, and you're listening to Back and Forth, a monthly conversation series where we highlight the work published on Forth.org. You'll hear from our writers and photographers, but also from the experts, advocates, and community members featured in our articles. Now, for those of you who haven't heard of us yet, Forth is a fully independent, not-for-profit media outlet that serves Long Beach, and only Long Beach. The all-volunteer publication has been run for the last three and a half years by a collective of artists, community organizers, journalists, and essayists. Really excited to get into today's show. We'll be talking about an innovative new program, 4th, launched last week called Art Not Ads, and how we hope to help promote local artists using our digital platform. But first, I'll be talking to Ariana Sawyer, a border researcher with Human Rights Watch, She'll be helping us unpack the situation at the U.S.-Mexico border and help us understand the factors that have led to the Long Beach Convention Center being turned into a temporary intake facility for migrant children. Now, if you haven't heard yet, earlier this month, the city council voted to lease the convention center out to the federal government in order to house up to 1,000 migrant children, many of whom arrived at the border without a caretaker. And the plan is to keep the children at the facility until they can be reunified with family here in the U.S. The first group of children arrived at the facility last week, and officials said that they will be provided with three meals a day, toys, books, as well as mental health care and medical services. On Tuesday, Mayor Robert Garcia spoke about the facility before the Border Security Facilitation and Operation House Congressional Subcommittee. Let's listen to a bit of that. Now, it's important enough that these children have come from the border. Most arrive alone without parents or family, uh, and bringing them to shelters like ours is certainly more humane than leaving them at the border. Now, HHS is focused on quick family reunification, and it's important to note that temporary sites like the Long Beach Convention Center are necessitated by this humanitarian mission, but these sites should not replace immigration reforms. The mayor has emphasized that the facility is only temporary and that the lease ends on August 2nd, though the contract does contain an option to extend the term if both parties agree. Now, to break down how we got to this point, I'm joined by border researcher for Human Rights Watch and my own colleague at the Daily 49er, Ariana Sawyer. Hi, Ariana. Welcome to the show.
1: Hey, thanks so much for having me.
0: Of course. Um, to start, can you help us understand how these intake facilities, uh, like the one here in Long Beach, fit into the immigration processing system for unaccompanied children?
1: Sure. So the processing of unaccompanied children is different um, from from that of adults or families, because they're, according to the government, traveling alone, and they need some additional protections. So what happens is children are apprehended by Customs and Border Protection, whether at a a port of entry or between ports of entry, and then um, they are supposed to be processed within 72 hours and sent to a a facility that's under the jurisdiction of the Department of Health and Human Services, specifically um, the Office of Refugee Resettlement. And so when that happens, they go to to one of those facilities, which contain um, licensed childcare providers, uh, people who are, you know, specially trained to to be with children, to deal with children. and that's particularly important, I think, because under the Trump administration, we were seeing a lot of children held in CDP custody, Border Patrol jails, right? For really long periods of time where, where we're talking about um, law enforcement officials with no such training.
0: So, Ariana, can you tell us um, some of the ways in which a migrant child might come to be considered unaccompanied and end up, say, at the Long Beach Convention Center under the care of DHHS?
1: So there are sort of, besides children who were genuinely traveling alone, there are sort of two ways that children would become unaccompanied along the border. The first way is is, is where children traveling with non-parental caregivers such as grandparents or aunts and uncles, um, older brothers and sisters are being separated by border patrol and uh, who, who then expel the adults either to Mexico or to their country of origin classify the children as unaccompanied, and then send those children to these HHS facilities. The other way that that's happening is when families along the border who know that if they, you know, try to cross the border as a family unit might be expelled, choose to send their children across the border alone instead, because it's the only way that they can be sure those children will find protection.
0: Can you elaborate a little bit more about um, the history of Title 42? I mean, as I gather, this is a a policy that's a holdover from the Trump administration.
1: Title 42 was implemented under the Trump administration in March of 2020. uh, After the COVID-19 pandemic really had started to to take off in the United States, the Trump administration used the COVID-19 pandemic as a a false justification for implementing this border closure. The Title 42 order issued by the CDC under political pressure from the Trump administration um, was, is based on this uh, really old uh, 1944 health law. And that public health law was intended to give the CDC quarantine authority at the border. It was intended to to stop the introduction of, of diseases at the border but that you know, quarantine authority was meant to be applied to all travelers equally, not just asylum seekers or you know, irregular migrants. There's no evidence that asylum seekers or other migrants um, po- pose more of a threat to public health safety than other travelers. And, and yet the United States used this um, public, misused this public health authority to block access to asylum because the ultimate goal was not to protect public health. The ultimate goal was to destroy the asylum system.
0: And Title 42 continues, this order continues to be in place under the Biden administration. Can you, can you explain how it's being implemented under Biden?
1: So contrary to Biden's campaign promises to implement a humane border regime, unfortunately, we have seen this administration adopt the Title 42 expulsion policy. Hundreds of public health experts have have said that this policy has no basis in public health. That we that the United States could implement policies at the border, you know, including the use of personal protective equipment, um, quarantine, COVID nineteen testing, COVID nineteen vaccinations, um, and those measures would both protect the right to seek asylum and uh, protect public health safety. Under the Trump administration, there was a, a massive buildup of people seeking asylum along the border. So people who had not been allowed to seek asylum or people who had been expelled and really have nothing to go back to. And so when we saw this border closure for a year, it really resulted in in that buildup. And so part of what we're seeing now in terms of the the uptick in the number of people arriving at the southern border or the number of unaccompanied children is actually a buildup of people already waiting along the border to seek safety in the United States. Uh, the Biden administration, unfortunately, has reiterated this public health rationale um, for its continued uh, use of Title 42. Um, what happened with unaccompanied children really happened, began to happen under the Trump administration. So we started to see this rise in the number of unaccompanied children arriving at the border as uh, you know, other borders became um, more lax um, as the pandemic uh, was sort of starting to get under control. Um, and we saw a federal judge in the District of Columbia uh, impose an injunction on this policy, saying specifically, you know, that children had to be exempted from this policy. That there are special protections that apply to unaccompanied children, that exempted that that exempted them from this policy, and made it so the Trump administration had to begin processing those children, whereas before they were expelling them like everyone else, like families, like adults, etc. Um, Under the, once Biden took office, another federal judge stayed that injunction saying that essentially the court would need to hear the arguments on the merits of the case and then would decide either, either way. Um, But Biden vowed to continue accepting unaccompanied children from that policy. Um, Instead of, of, instead of getting rid of Title 42 as, as promised, instead of, you know, going reversing course on this super abusive policy um, for everyone. He he only did that for children. It's sort of the bare minimum, right? And so that's why we've seen these sort of additional family separations happening at the border.
0: So Ariana, I know you've extensively interviewed migrants at the border. Can you kind of give us an idea what the needs of these children and these families, um, you know, who are seeking refuge here in the US? um, What are their needs? And and are they going to be do you expect that they're going to be met by DHHS?
1: So a lot of these unaccompanied children are, are arriving because they are fleeing really desperate, dire situations in their countries of origin, right? So this like poverty and violence, gang violence, state violence, um, etc. And um, most, the vast majority of them already have family in the United States with whom they are hoping to reunite. Under the Trump administration, when... You know, children were spending far too long in, in DHS custody in these border jails. Um, CBP detention facilities are extremely abusive. They are no place for children. Not only are the border agents not trained to deal with children, not trained to, you know, interact with young children um, children, uh, those conditions are more abusive than those in, in jails, right? So the temperatures are very cold. Um, children often are not allowed to go outside. Uh, the, food is in, the food is nutritionally inadequate. They have no access to phone calls to attorneys. Um, the lights are on all the time. There are no games. You know, it's just a really inappropriate environment for a child. So, the, you know, the sort of point of opening these influx centers is to, is to get chill, move children, move unaccompanied children very quickly out of these facilities and into um, a more appropriate setting. HHS facilities or our facilities under HHS are, are, are more appropriately designed for children. You can see like the Long Beach Convention Center, you know, it's, it's definitely temporary, right? But at the very least, there are games, books, um, beds, real beds, which is something that children don't have in, in border jails, um, more appropriate temperature settings. Um, and and most importantly, personnel who are licensed and trained to interact with children. In terms of needs for for those children, you know, they need to be as quickly as possible reunited with their sponsors, with their caregivers, their families, um, who are already in the United States. What we saw under the Trump administration were, were some, you know, some rules put in place that really lengthened the amount of time it took to place a child with a sponsor, which caused the sort of bottlenecking in HHS um, facilities. And, you know, which meant ultimately we saw an average, a child spending an average of, you know, around a hundred days in one of those facilities. The Biden administration is aiming to get children out of these uh, emergency intake facilities much more quickly um, within something like 10 days, I think I read. Um, We'll see if that happens. Uh, they are, I understand that the administration is working to, to expedite that process, but of course there are, you know, there are checks that are really important. You don't want to be, you know, delivering a child into the arms of, you know, an abuser or, a, you know, a non-family member who you haven't really been able to check out. But at the same time, the, you know, the process for doing that under the Trump administration was too onerous. And so, um, and so we'll see sort of what happens. I think that the, the intake facilities are, are well-equipped to meet the needs of the children who are arriving there. But I think the most important thing is that we get these children out of government custody as quickly as possible.
0: So, Ariana, we're hearing a lot about um, the children who are uh, reaching the border uh, and seeking asylum. But what if you're a single person or you know, the, uh, the families of these children? What's, what's happening to you?
1: So right now, under this Title 42 expulsion policy, if you are a single asylum seeker arriving at the border, or if you are, you know, an adult pair even, or a group of adults, um, you are expelled. You are rapidly expelled without the legally required fear screenings that protect people from being returned to the, to the arms of their abusers, essentially. The reason why Title 42 is so illegal is because it, it gives border agents the you know, ultimate authority, unchecked authority to, to perform these expulsions without making sure that we aren't returning someone to death. And so, so far we've seen the Biden administration sort of choose to allow in some number of families arriving at the border, um, but, but hundreds of others are being expelled. Um, the Biden administration has contracted with an NGO along the border to, to provide some reception centers um, essentially, uh, you know, bringing these families to hotels where they can be tested for COVID-19, can get a change of clothes, a shower, and help to you know move on to where their family or friends are living in the United States. Um, but the Biden administration needs to expand that process. So there are plenty of NGOs and shelters along the border standing empty and ready and waiting to help the Biden administration perform this humanitarian reception as promised, and they should do so.
0: Well, that's a good place to stop. Thank you, Ariana, for being on the show.
1: Thank you so much.
0: You're listening to KLBP 99.1 FM, Long Beach Public Radio. After the break, my colleague Esther Kang will be taking the mic to lead a conversation about a new program, Fourth Launch, to promote local artists. Stay tuned. (laughs)
2: Welcome back. You're listening to Back and Forth, a collaboration between KLBP and Forth.org. This is Esther King, an editor with Forth. Last week, Forth launched a new program called Art Not Ads in collaboration with Art Realm, a local artist collective. The goal of the program is to feature work by local artists in the spaces where you typically see ads on other media websites. Forth has never run ads on its website, but now we've taken that a step further to support the local art scene. Brandy Davidson, the founder of Art Realm, will be curating the art that is displayed on the Fourth website. She's here with me today, along with Fourth co-founder and editor Kevin Flores, to talk more about art not At. All right. Hello, Brandy and Kevin. Um, I'm really excited to be uh, chatting with y'all today. Um, I want to start with you, Brandy. Can you tell us a little bit about Art Realm and how it started? Of course. So Art Realm
3: started out of a need that I saw in the creative community. There weren't many creative spaces for emerging artists, um, specifically artists of color. And I noticed this cycle of you can't be displayed in certain galleries if you haven't been shown in other places. And how can you get shown in other places (laughs) if you can't get into galleries? So I wanted to Break that cycle by creating our own platform and uh, creating spaces and giving emerging artists a space where they can be seen
2: so it's a it's a collective right
3: yes so what started off as just a simple showcase turned into this community of artists who were basically looking for support and to support other creatives And it turned into a group of artists that wanted to constantly be in communication and support of each other. So it turned into a collective.
2: Very cool. And the collective is comprised of uh, Long Beach artists exclusively or...? So we
3: exclusively showcase in Long Beach right now. Uh, The goal behind that was I get tired of seeing creatives having to go to the greater LA area. Right. Just to have opportunities. When a lot of creatives are actually coming out of Long Beach, why would we not have creative spaces or be able to show in our own city? But there are actually artists from all over in art realm, but predominantly from Long Beach. At this moment.
2: Very cool. And these artists, are they um all in the in the visual medium or are they artists of um all different practice? Yes,
3: yeah, so it's artists from all different mediums, from film and videography and paint to sculpture, um, music artists also. So we're growing and changing
2: as we go along every day. Cool. So in terms of Art Not Ads, how will you be curating the art that is chosen for this project? Um, what kind of features should we expect to be seeing? So I'm hoping
3: to showcase whoever is producing great content from Long Beach, uh, whoever is currently creating just good work. And it'll be one artist a month. And we'll also be showcasing
2: Q&As with each of the artists as well. Cool. Um, Let's talk a little bit about the first feature uh, of Art Not Ads, which is Jairus Mosey. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how you uh, decided to choose uh, Jairus as the first feature and just a little preview of the Q&A that that you had with him and which will be published next week?
3: Of course. So JMo came out with a great project recently. Um, I've seen him perform in person a few times he's a great performer he's a great artist and once I heard this project it actually has been helping me through just day-to-day life so I thought it was very fitting to display that work to everyone else Mm -hmm. he actually is a Grammy award-winning artist that's from Long Beach And although I've been around him a lot, I wasn't familiar with his full background. So the Q&A really goes into his family, where he comes from, uh, where his talent comes from, and just how he got to this point. So I think it's a lot of great information for artists in general, just hearing the background story of how you get to this point in your career. So I'm very excited for everyone to hear about just his story and his life transitions.
2: Very cool. Um, Kevin, let's pivot to you. So can you tell me a little bit about why Forth doesn't run ads on its website?
0: I think from the beginning, we we realized how detrimental advertisement was to media. Um, Traditionally in the newspaper business, there's supposed to be a firewall between the advertisement department and the editorial section. And, you know, that's supposed to prevent any conflict of interest, any conflicts of interest. But, you know, in this day and age when, when newspapers are really clinging cleaning for life, uh, every ad account is super precious. And you can't really afford to let your stories make an ad client mad or they'll pull the plug, especially the big corporate ones. Mm-hmm. Um, but even local businesses, you know, who advertise, they have business associations and, and they can all organized to boycott your publication if you make them mad. Um, you know, it's been reported that that's in part what took down the district, which was an all weekly here in Long Beach. You know, I've heard of this happening in other local publications, and it just really undercuts the work that journalists and storytellers do if they can't freely challenge the narratives of the status quo um, without their sort of financial backing uh, being threatened. That's, that's why we really just have never run ads on 4th and, and we're fully funded by, by readers, small donations by readers.
2: So where did the inspiration for Art Not Ads uh, come from? And were there any challenges in making it happen?
0: The inspiration kind of came from just thinking about how ugly ads are and, and how, little, <laughs> how little cultural value they really provide us with. Um, you know, I've, I've always thought that cities should should expropriate billboards and use them to display art. I mean, I, I think our urban landscape would be much more beautiful. Um, so that's kind of the, the line of thinking here. And that's kind of what we do, we've done with Art Not Ads. As far as challenges, I, I, I mean, I'm definitely trying to communicate what we wanted um, Art Not Ads to look like to our, to our wonderful web developer, Alex Cater. Um, I don't know that there's really anything like this that exists, so we kind of had to scheme it up um, from scratch, and uh, luckily Alex kind of got what we were trying to do and, and worked with us. And
2: we could say that this project itself is also funded by readers, right?
0: Yes, that's right. Um, uh, a good chunk of the money that, that we got from our end-of-the-year end of fundraiser went to creating this. Um, you know, <laughs> web development is is not cheap, but you know, we were able to do it and we're really proud of it and can't wait to see it grow and flourish.
2: Yes. So last question, this one's for both of you. What do you hope Art Not Ads achieves? I'm really
3: hoping that, well, first off, that the artists get their just due and just the recognition that they deserve. I'm also hoping that maybe this will set an example for other publications and um, for other sources that it can do something similar and you can have your own motives and be productive and giving out content, but at the same time, helping creatives or helping artists achieve their goals uh, from the community. So I'm really hoping that this, you know, sets a, a new wave.
0: Yeah. And I, along similar, similar lines, I'm really hoping it spreads awareness that our physical spaces and our digital spaces don't have to be jam-packed with ads. You know, in a way, it's the kind of pollution, if we think about it. Mm -hmm. And I also just hope our readers get to know more members of our very talented and diverse art community. They really deserve more love and spotlighting.
2: Well, that's all the questions I have for you guys today, Uh, unless there's something that either of you want to add?
0: No ads, please.
2: (laughs) (laughs) All right, thanks, y'all.
0: That's all the time we have this week, folks. Thank you for listening. Special thanks to all our guests, the team at KLBP, and especially Gabe Ferrales, our engineer. If you value truly independent local media, please consider donating to both KLBP and Forth.org. This has been Back and Forth. My name is Kevin Flores, editor at Forth.org. Take care.